Chapter one, take two. Two. The sands of time cannot be stopped. Years pass whether we will them or not, but we can remember. What has been lost may yet live on in memories. That which you will hear is imperfect and fragmented, yet treasure it, for without you it does not exist. I give you now a memory that has been forgotten, hidden in the dreamy haze that lies behind us. His keen eyes inspected their interested faces. His gaze lingered on Aragon last of all. Before your grandfather's fathers were born, and yea, even before their fathers, the dragon riders were formed. To protect and guard was their mission, and for thousands of years they succeeded. Their prowess in battle was unmatched, for each had the strength of ten men. They were immortal, unless blade or poison took them. For good only were their powers used, and under their tutelage tall cities and towers were built out of the living stone. While they kept peace, the land flourished. It was a golden time. The elves were our allies, the dwarves our friends. Wealth flowed into our cities, and men prospered, but weep, for it could not last. Brom looked down silently. Infinite sadness resonated in his voice. Though no enemy could destroy them, they could not guard against themselves. And it came to pass at the height of their power that a boy, Galbatorix by name, was born in the province of Inzelbeth, which is no more. At ten he was tested, as was the custom, and it was found that great power resided in him. The riders accepted him as their own. Through their training he passed exceeding all others in skill, Gifted with a sharp mind and a strong body, he quickly took his place among the rider's ranks. Some saw his abrupt rise as dangerous and warned the others, but the riders had grown arrogant in their power and ignored caution. Alas, sorrow was conceived that day. So it was that soon after his training was finished, Galbatorix took a reckless trip with two friends. Far north they flew, night and day, and passed into the Urgle's remaining territory, foolishly thinking their new powers would protect them. There, on a thick sheet of ice unmelted even in summer, they were ambushed in their sleep. Though his friends and their dragons were butchered and he suffered great wounds, Galbatorix slew his attackers. Tragically, during the fight, a stray arrow pierced his dragon's heart. Without the arts to save her, she died in his arms. Then were the seeds of madness planted. The storyteller clasped his hands and looked around slowly, shadows flickering across his worn face. The next words came like the mournful toll of a requiem. Alone, bereft of much of his strength and half mad with loss, Galbatorix wandered without hope in that desolate land, seeking death. It did not come to him, though he threw himself without fear against any living thing. Urgles and other monsters soon fled from his haunted form. During this time, he came to realize that the riders might grant him another dragon. Driven by this thought, he began the arduous journey on foot back through the spine. Territory he had soared over effortlessly on a dragon's back now took him months to traverse. He could hunt with magic, but oftentimes he walked in places where animals did not travel. Thus, when his feet finally left the mountains, he was close to death. A farmer found him collapsed in the mud and summoned the riders. Unconscious, he was taken to their holdings and his body healed. He slept for four days. Upon awakening, he gave no sign of his fevered mind. When he was brought before a council convened to judge him, Galbatorix demanded another dragon. 
The desperation of the request revealed his dementia and the council saw him for what he truly was. Denied his hope, Galvatorix, through the twisted mirror of his madness, came to believe it was the writer's fault his dragon had died. Night after night he brooded on that and formulated a plan to exact revenge. Brahm's words dropped to a mesmerizing whisper. He found a sympathetic writer, and there his insidious words took root. By persistent reasoning and the use of dark secrets learned from the shade, he inflamed the writer against their elders. Together, they treacherously lured and killed an elder. When the foul deed was done, Galbatorix turned on his ally and slaughtered him without warning. The riders found him then, with blood dripping from his hands. A scream tore from his lips, and he fled into the night. As he was cunning in his madness, they could not find him. For years, he hid in wastelands like a hunted animal always watching for pursuers. His atrocity was not forgotten, but over time searches ceased. Then, through some ill fortune, he met a young rider, Morzan, strong of body but weak of mind. Galbatorx convinced Morzan to leave a gate unbolted in the citadel Illyria, which is now called Urubane. Through this gate, Galbatorx entered and stole a dragon hatchling. He and his new disciple hid themselves in an evil place where the riders dared not venture. There, Morzan entered into a dark apprenticeship, learning secrets and forbidden magic that should never have been revealed. When his instruction was finished and Galbatorix's black dragon, True Khan, was fully grown, Galbatorix revealed himself to the world with Morzan at his side. Together they fought any rider they met. With each kill, their strength grew. Twelve of the riders joined Galbatorix out of desire for power and revenge against perceived wrongs. Those twelve, with Morzan, became the thirteen Forsworn. The riders were unprepared and fell beneath the onslaught. The elves, too, fought bitterly against Galbatorix, but they were overthrown and forced to flee to their secret places, from whence they can't come no more. Only Vrail, leader of the riders, could resist Galbatorix and the Forsworn. Ancient and wise, he struggled to save what he could and keep the remaining dragons from falling to his enemies. In the last battle before the gates of Doru Ariba, Vrail defeated Galbatorix but hesitated with the final blow. Galbatorix seized the moment and smote him in the side. Grievously wounded, Vrail fled to Utgard Mountain, where he hoped to gather strength. But it was not to be, for Galbatorix found him. And as they fought, Galbatorix kicked Vrail in the fork of his legs. With that underhanded blow, he gained dominance over Vrail and removed his head with the blazing sword. Then, as power rushed through his veins, Galbatorix anointed himself king over all Alagazia, and from that day, he has ruled us. Awesome. Thanks for that reading, Brie. It was super long. It was long, but it was explanatory. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Chapter 1, Take 2, a podcast where we read a book, then watch the film, and discuss the adaption. I'm Maddie. And I'm Brie. Yeah. And Brie just read us that piece from, you might have guessed, Eragon by Christopher Paolini. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is the second time I've read the book before and listened to the audiobook. Um, I definitely enjoyed the audiobook and listening to it the second time around more than the first time. I just feel like I had more emotional connection and, and I was invested. Yes. 
Yeah. I enjoyed Aragon more having read the rest of the Inheritance Cycle and yeah, exactly. Yeah, having it, it, like having a better understanding of who Aragon is and who he would become. Yeah, I think having that context, it's a bit unfortunate that you have to read four books to go back to the beginning and be like, oh, Aragon, little baby. But sometimes that's how it is. Yeah. Um. I think. Yeah. I think. In this case, it makes complete sense because the author started when he was so young. Yeah, publishing a book when you're 17 is incredibly impressive. Yeah. Um, so uh, he grew with the books. Yeah. It's also a very long book. Like the audio book was 16 hours. Yeah. Yeah, that's a long book. It's, it was an extremely long book. Yeah. Uh, summary? Yeah. Yeah, please. Also summary. Um, so it's... You'd think we'd have this organized beforehand. I could give you a summary or you could watch Star Wars. <laughs> um, as the joke goes with this book series. So Aragon is a farm boy. His town is attacked when he discovers a stone in a place called the Spine. He learns that the stone is actually a dragon and he goes on a journey to become a dragon rider, which is a, a race of, a, a now extinct race of warriors. Um, a bit like the Jedi. A bit like the Jedi. Uh, he has a mentor who later dies. And it basically starts him on a journey of re- of joining a rebellion uh, as a dragon rider and um, becoming the new hope of a rebellion that was nearly nearly uh, dying out. So mm. to overthrow an evil dragon rider, yes, someone who, who has turned to the dark side. Yeah, was considered extremely powerful and then goes mad and kills and slaughters his entire mad race. because of loss. Yeah. It's exactly what happens to Darth Vader. Well, the more I reflect he becomes on no, he becomes mad because he fears loss. He fears. No, no, he completely turns once Padme has died. Right, but up until that point, he's kind of teetering on the edge. But yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, and yeah. Anyway, we don't need to keep comparing. Yeah, him. yeah, that's a pretty good summary. Um, um, let's talk into the review. Uh, of it um i'm sure you have some facts yeah definitely i mean you know me i enjoy numbers so the book was originally self-published by his parents yes in 2002 and then picked up by a different publisher and became more uh nationally spread yeah he went on a massive book tour yeah really self-publicizing to promote it and so it was released in 2003 the novel and that's when you know Everyone found it and it grew in popularity. And the film was then later released in 2006. It's only an hour and 44 minutes long. And I bring that up because I feel like if they had just committed to the fact that it needed to be a longer film, then it could have been something much better than what it was. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where they underestimated their audience because it was designed for young boys, for young children. And... And because of that, they were like, well, young children don't want to sit through a two and a half hour film, but mm. they do. Yeah. As Harry Potter and uh, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars have all proven time and time again. Yeah, absolutely. Their, so uh, that's bizarre. No, I totally agree. Um, it was directed by Stephen Fangmeier. Yeah, he's, he's worked on quite a few 
films that I enjoy. Yeah, but I was doing a bit more research on him, and he's normally a visual effects guy, so he's done things like... Which is why the visual effects were... Yeah, exactly. Right. As I read okay. that, I was like, that makes a lot of sense, because visually, Aragon is really impressive. Like um, For 2007, absolutely. Yeah, like, Sephira looks really good. I don't enjoy the costumes of the Varden. I think they're a bit um, pandery, would you say? They're... Maybe stereotypical would be a better word. They're misplaced. The Varden is a hidden rebellion uh, yeah. that has to smuggle in supplies. They're not all Realistically wearing... speaking, none of them would have very fine clothing. Yeah, and they're wearing all of them. All of them are wearing like chainmail and they the jewels have and jewels. Yeah, no, it, totally. it's bizarre. They would be wearing hand me downs and repaired things. I think more uh, a more realistic example would be something like um, the hidden group in the One Hundred. Like that makes more sense to me, which you haven't seen, but. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It'd be a lot I was of imagining for some, I was like the Ewoks because they just wear rags and stuff. <laughs> Ewoks are adorable. Um, it's only got 16% uh, for a review on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I'm not surprised by that. 5.1 out of 10 on IMDb. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is what it is. The budget was $100 million and it actually box office $249 million, mm. which I'm impressed by. I Obviously, people would have seen it because they were fans of the book. Yeah. But obviously it did poorly and they didn't make any more. So, yeah, I think even though it made some money, I think the reviews would have just been too harsh to be, like, encouraging it all to keep making movies. Some good names. Some really good names. Eragon is Ed Spellers. Spielers. Okay, I when I said good names, I didn't mean Ed Spielers. <laughs> no offense. Well, Sophia is voiced by Rachel Weiss, who's yep. obviously very famous, and I think... Um, I feel like the budget of the film was spent on casting her and the visual effects. And I just wish that more had been put into the script. Mm, yes, I agree. More should have been put into the script. But Jeremy Irons is also a relatively well-known actor. Oh, not, absolutely. Not, maybe not as big of a name as Rachel Wise, depending on your perspective. But, I mean, he's he's done Shakespeare with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Like, he's quite a yeah, talented yeah. actor. No, he is. And he plays Brom, who is the father figure and actually... If you've read the books later on, spoiler alert, he is Aragorn's father, which yeah. you let you find on later on. Find about later on. Oh my god, I can't get that out. You find out later on. Interestingly enough, Christopher Paolini uh, praised... Pa- I was just, just going to say, Paolini! <laughs> Christopher Paolini praised uh, uh, Jeremy Irons' performance as Brom. And I... Oh, hearing that, I thought, okay, alright, I can see... He's definitely got that gruff sort of father figure-esque-ness that Brahms' character has with Aragon because he recognizes the dangers uh, more severely than Aragon can or is able to to recognize it around him and he recognizes the importance of it but I think that the way that Brahms' character is written in the movie is much more cruel. I absolutely agree. I was just thinking about the scene where Brom finds Aragorn um, when his uncle has just been killed and he's being really harsh about getting on the horse and getting away from here and he's just like super aggressive about it and I don't think that that's definitely not how I saw Brom's character I saw him much more like yeah he's hard on Aragorn because he's his he knows he's his father and he knows he's like he is the hope of the Varden and the new dragon riders but yeah I don't think he would be so cruel like he just seems he seems angry at Aragorn which isn't the case yeah, I never got the impression that Brom was jealous of Aragorn being a writer in the book. No, I never got that. No. And 
I think that the way that Brom, uh, Garrow's death is handled and Brom's reaction to it just setting fire to Garrow, I don't think Brom would do that. Brom recognized the significance and the pain that Aragon felt in losing Garrow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was, yeah, odd choice. Arya is played by Saina. Sorry, that's not how you say that word. Sienna. Sienna, yeah. Don't know why I couldn't Gilroy. pronounce that. Gilroy, who actually played... Risa. Risa in Inkheart, which we did towards the beginning of this season. So yeah. that's kind of a weird, unintentional connection. Yeah, there was another one. There was another... Is it Jeremy Irons? He had another one that we talked about. Oh, yeah. He's in um, Beautiful Creatures. Yes. Jeremy Irons is in The Beautiful Creatures. I feel... <laughs> Fantasy, the genre of fantasy. Let's use these actors. Yeah, Jeremy Irons has been in a lot of fantasy yeah. uh, films. Dooza is played by Robert Carlyle. Who is most famous for his role in Once Upon a Time, I would think. Now. Yeah, he's Mr. Gold, and I see him definitely as a great I wonder villain. if they used this to cast him as Mr. Gold. I wonder. Because his Dooza is not actually that far off as... Mr. Gold as Rumpelstiltskin. No, it's not. No, it's not. And, uh, you know, I, again, I thought the effects were good. Like, he looked creepy, but I then there was lots of choices in the film that I wouldn't have done. Um, Gal- I agree. Galba Torix is played by John Malkovich. I actually really don't like John Malkovich because I saw the film being John Malkovich as a young child, and it was a, it was a mindfuck. And I, it just really put me off the actor. Like, there's this weird thing with Cameron Diaz where you can go through this door and you can go inside his head and, like, you experience life as him. And it gets real messed up where he goes inside his own head and then everyone looks like John Malkovich and it's just... It's a trippy movie, man. <laughs> Did not enjoy it. But I am also frustrated that he's even in this first film because it really takes the power away of the unknown villain. Yeah. Like, he's not even in the first book. Like, he's mentioned, obviously, of course, as this daunting, shadowy figure. And it makes sense that he wouldn't be in the first book because... You've got to build to that. Yeah, you do have to build to that, especially in this in this particular series. If Galbatorix met Aragorn in the first book, I would never be able to get over the fact that Aragorn would have to escape for the series to consider, continue. And Aragorn couldn't escape Galbatorix. Yeah, they don't... He can escape other villains. And I will believe that, but he... I, I mean, he can't I, escape Galvatorix, no. That's the whole yeah. point. I have trouble dealing with the fact that he kills Dooza in the first book. Yeah, but he only does... With because, Arya's help. Yeah, yeah, and Sephira's help. Yeah. Because they distract him. Sure. So, yeah. It is... It's impressive, but it's only... Like, he, yeah, says, he says later on, it's just because he was lucky. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's borderline unbelievable, but, it, yeah. you know. So, it, it makes sense to me. And also because of the type of universe that we're in, where they don't have, you know secure forms of communication they don't have telephones or any sort of um, technology which is often true in these types of fantasy books so it makes sense if they want to cross land or send a message it's got to go by a messenger he you know he there's no way he would have seen galbatorix yeah absolutely Uh, and not that he does like Eragon and galbatorix don't ever cross paths in the first film but i just think they really it's almost like they made it knowing that they weren't going to make more films because you're really just like, what are you trying to achieve there with making that choice and, you know, kind of demystifying the main villain? Well, my brother suggested that maybe they never intended to make another film and that um, that they made this film knowing it would fail and it had intended to use it as a tax write-off. What an odd choice, and I just find that irritating. I, I, do, I, I don't know if it's true. Uh, it, it could it'd be, be interesting, just like... It'd be interesting if it was true. A combination of factors... 
you know, it's, it's believable and also not believable because this series at the time that it was released was set up to potentially be something that could compete with um, Harry Potter. It was a ripe age to release the film. So it, it would be weird that they would choose this particular film to destroy. Yeah. Like, there's, there's no true Harry Potter fan that's out there going, the Harry Potter films were a massive success uh, from, <laughs> from, a, from an adaptation yeah, standpoint. They, they're just fun. But yeah, I can watch all of those films and enjoy them. Yeah, even though I'm a huge fan of the books. Even though I'm a yeah. huge fan of the books. Even Absolutely. though they leave out heaps of stuff, even though characters change. Because the heart of every character is the same. And I think that's what's important. Yeah, I totally agree. Just a couple more things I want to mention as far as the cast goes. Um, Murtag is played by Garrett Hedlund, Hedlund um, who I actually don't know. He looks more familiar in his image. I'm looking at it on Google right now. But he seems he seems very emo and like, oh, I'm a brooding, dramatic character. And I didn't I didn't like that interpretation. Ever, mm. And I thought it was too, um, I guess, just... Of Murtag. Of Murtag. You said Aragorn. I didn't like any of the young actors. I didn't like the interpretation of any of them. Yeah. I didn't like... Um, I hated Angela. So she was played oh, by... Oh, Angela was by far the worst. <laughs> she came the out. The worst part in of the this scene. film. And we literally, out loud, we were like, what, what? the fuck? <laughs> She's played by Josh Stone, who isn't, like, I don't really know her from anything else, but it just absolutely is an incorrect visual interpretation of Angela. She's supposed to be this kind of kooky... Older lady. Who's yeah, I pictured Mrs. Mrs. Cox. You guys won't have any reference for that, but uh, she's she, just a she's my art teacher. Yeah, you know, she's she's wonderful. She's wonderful, uh, eccentric woman, and I and I and I. That's how I pictured Angela. Yeah, um, I really didn't like Nazareta. The casting, like I didn't. I didn't like Nazareta either. Not I, even the casting. She, she didn't even have. She didn't have an opportunity to even act really. But the the look that they gave her, yeah. was just so off. It was really off because, in order for her rise to power that she has in the first book to make sense, she has to look like a child. Rather than... Well, the the figures they chose seemed quite strong and sexually confident and... Yeah, very sexually confident. And and, and, and Nazaweda has to come off as like more like a childlike empress. Like someone who is who has the ability to command presence, but you could also underestimate her. And I don't think you could underestimate that interpretation. Yeah. The one in the film. And there's... I'm going to pronounce this one wrong. I'm sorry. I'm not doing very well with names today. Um, Jajimon Haosu as Ajihad, who is the leader of the Varden, who is actually supposed to die. Oh, is that the second one? Is that the first one? No, he dies in the first one. Yeah, he dies in the first one so that Nazareta can take over. And that doesn't even happen. Like, they made a lot of changes to the plot of the book that I really didn't agree with and it made it forced them into situations that I just felt were really awkward like Murtag leads Aragorn to the Varden as a way of him you know joining the adventure but in real in the book he doesn't want to go to the Varden because he's the son of Morzan who's one of the Forsworn like you talked about and he's afraid of the Varden capturing him but he ends up leading yeah. Aragorn there because they're trying to save Arya and it's just like that was a really weird way to force that plot point it was, and, it, and and then at the end, he doesn't leave with Arya. Yeah, Arya's gone, and he wakes up, and Sephira, he saves Sephira, which doesn't happen. Like, she doesn't... Ugh, yeah, lots of odd choices, but that's... Yeah, those are my facts um, as far as numbers and the cast and that kind of thing. I don't even know if Ed um, Spielers... 
has done anything else since then. You know, he was a handsome boy, um, but I didn't think he also had a transformation as well as he should have. Like Eragon, it's talked about in the book, how he goes from being this little scrawny kid to someone really buff and just more hard because of the training he goes through with Brom. I don't feel like that happens. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would have enjoyed seeing that. I know that would have been harder to do with the special effects that were available. Mm. But I mean, for films, they have done transformations where they film part of it and then give the actor time off to do the transformation. Mm. And I think that would have been possible. Yeah. The actor's 31 now, and he has a child and everything, and that's weird because he plays such a young boy in Aragon. Oh, he's been in Outlander. He's also been in Downtown Abbey, Alice Through the Looking Glass, which I do not remember him in that. I don't remember her in Downtown Abbey, but I didn't finish the series, so. I don't think there's a description of Angela in the book. She does have dimples, and Aragon says you're not that old. So I would picture her in her 40s or 50s. Sure. Which wouldn't be that old to Aragon. Um, I would not picture her in her 20s or 30s, which is what she's... Yeah, and she's, like, book. covered... She's in, super beautiful. ...in jewellery, and it's... But that whole scene it's is so super weird. weird and really forced. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, not my... Yeah. I agree. Like, she gets her eyes get all misty... And I didn't picture it like that. I picture her look at the bones and it would be more like a fortune teller yeah, be like, who's well, like, pl- reading ah! tarot cards than, yeah. you know. It's, just, it's not a trance. Mm. She's just reading them because she's, you know, she's actually, she is old in years, even though she doesn't look that old, but she obviously, magic users look younger and live longer. It's just sure. one of the, a lot of the time, one of the traits of those worlds. How would you rate this as an adaptation? As an adaptation, four out of ten. They still have, I guess they still have Aragon and Sephira, but everything else is kind of jumbled up. Yeah. It was just, I rated that poorly because it was frustrating to watch. It was frustrating to watch. The opening sequence, I mean, narration aside, which I didn't Boo! like, but I didn't feel like it was necessary, wasn't bad. Like the, the start off, I mean, he's, he's in the woods, he's hunting, um, Arya's kidnapped, and that's kind of, those are two scenes are juxtaposed against each other. Definitely, but the egg looks ridiculous. The egg, I didn't like, the design of this film, um, apart from maybe Sephira, was awful. But I I even didn't like Sephira, she looked too much like a bird to me. Yeah, sure. She's never described as having feathers. Does she have feathers at one point? In the book? Absolutely, or in the movie? Yeah, in the movie. Yeah. Her wings have feathers. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I disagree with her having feathers. I think, yeah, she looks pretty good. <sighs> oh, she looks she looks beautiful. I just didn't I didn't love her design. I also didn't yeah, love Baby Sephira. She was almost too pretty. Baby Sephira was too cute. Yeah. Like, this is a dragon that's supposed to be kind of... It should be kind of ugly. Yeah, I pictured something more like Norbert. Norbert. From Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Oh, okay. We keep referencing Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she does have feathers when she comes out of the egg as well. I can, I can visualize that. Uh, there's also the weird choice of when she first flies and then in the sky she ages and suddenly becomes fully grown. Yeah. That was ridiculous. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. How would you rate the film? Yeah, the adaption, sorry. <laughs> why is it? Why are you so. You seem, why do you seem so torn? Two? Yeah. Why so Why so uh, Why low? Solo? Um, because the opening is right. And in in some ways the sequence of event is, events are right, but... <laughs> but not really. But not really. Um, like, 
you basically start at the beginning. Carvajal is all wrong. Kiro dies at about the right time, kind of. The Rozak are... (laughs) <laughs> the rules zombie egg. creatures with, with bugs bugs crawling over them that are brought to life by Durza as opposed to an actual species of creatures like yeah. they are in the book with their own rituals and their own culture and they're supposed to look more like birds, birds. uh yeah definitely. and they're just to be hunched and, and wear cloaks and when Eragon and Brom leave Carverhall it's to revenge Brom it's not to but it's just... to revenge Garrow Fuck me. I there were a lot of characters. It's to revenge Garrow, who is Eragon's uncle, not to just go straight to the Varden. Like, Eragon, for a whole bunch of the book, hasn't decided if he is going to actively choose to support the Varden. Because, like it would be, like, it's frustrating, because even though this is a fantasy book, the book is much more realistic than the film would be. A lot of the time in film, they don't give enough evidence or justification they just say oh we need him to go to the Varden so he's keen but in the book he's really indecisive about whether or not he wants to actively side against the king and you know make him your enemy because that is a permanent choice yeah and and he's aware of that and and it's part of his greater character transformation it doesn't seem like um Christopher Paolini necessarily knew the entire story arc but there's an idea of in the magic world that uh, is introduced in Aragon that everybody has a true name and that name gives you complete control over the person. And it's not a name like my name, Brianna. It's a name that is based on a combination of essentially adjectives or nouns that describe you mm. yep. um, and who your true nature is. And a, and a, and a big thing is, is that at the end of the book series, when he discovers his true name, which unlocks a door that holds uh, a secret trove of power, essentially, that he needs, um, he realizes that he's changed so much. When he, the book series starts, he's a farm boy, and he his goal is to a- avenge Garrow and then lead a normal life. And yeah. then, you know, it's not even until the end... Of the first book that he he really comes, like, throughout the whole first book, for most of it, he's thinking, I'm going to chase the Razak, I will kill them, and then I'll go back to Carvajal. Yeah. And it's not till the end of the book that he realizes he can never go back to Carvajal. Mm-hmm. He can never leave that, lead that life again because he will always be hunted by Galbatorix until he's dead or Galbatorix is dead. Yeah, because it's a huge shift for him to be like, I'm a farm boy to, no, I'm the only dragon rider who, you know, is a good guy. Yeah, I need to protect the kingdom or stop the king from all of the pain and suffering that he's causing. Yeah. And a huge motivation for Aragorn to decide to go to the Varden is when Brom is killed, which is later on in the book as well. Because he's like, Brom... No, he goes to the Varden to save Arya. Does he, ne- does he not want to go after Brom? Have I... No. He's just hanging out with Murtaugh. And then he rescues Arya, and Arya needs uh, Tunivor's nectar, which can only be... Go- he can only That's get right. at the Varden. Sorry. The and he feels is... a connection to her. Yeah. The film's messed up my sequence of events. That's mm. right. That's right. <laughs> but exactly. That's my point. And that, you know, that's like the last quarter, if not less, of the book where he's actually, yeah, I'm going to the Varden to save Arya. Oh, I'm with the Varden now. We're about to be attacked. I guess I should pick sides. Yeah. And of course, because he's the protagonist, he picks the good guys. I do want to talk about one of the criticisms. And in this, I'm going to defend the movie and the book. Great. And 
I watched a good video by Daniel Green that reviewed Aragon and talked about some of um, the problems people have with it. And the number one thing that seems to come up in all of the reviews of both the movie and the film is how derivative, uh, both the movie and the book, is how derivative it is. Like, like we made the joke at the beginning, you know, I'll just give you the summary for Star Wars, it'd be, it'd be faster. Um, it is really similar. You've got a farm boy who doesn't really know whose parents are and discovers he has a hidden power and he's particularly good at it. It's trained by a father figure who later dies and he eventually joins a rebel army to rise up against someone who's one of his kind who turned evil. It's very similar to Star Wars. Mm. And I get that. However, <laughs> I don't have an issue with someone, something being derivative and different. The world of Star Wars is vastly different from the world of Aragon. Yeah, definitely. And the story of Aragon is different from the story of Lord of the Rings, which is one of the other things that it was considered derivative of because of the world building. But, you know, the, what people don't realize, I guess, is that every story is derivative to an extent. Yep. Um, and I think a really great example of this that we don't talk about is Shakespeare. But, I mean, we do talk about it if you're in a literature class, but Shakespeare derived all of his stories from a type of story that existed before him. Hamlet is a revenge plot. That's that idea, that story existed long before Shakespeare sat down and wrote Hamlet. We like Hamlet because Shakespeare did it so well. Yeah, exactly. Hamlet's character was fascinating and interesting. His existentialist crisis made the character more developed. And the madness element, Ophelia, like, it, 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 it's fascinating. And I'm not saying that Christopher Paolini did or didn't do Aragon very well. I'm saying that something being derivative in and of itself can't be a criticism because, you know, and I think uh, what Dan, Daniel Green said in his review is made sense. Um, Christopher Paolini was six, 15 or 16 when he started writing this book. Yep. And he used the source material that he was familiar with, which would have been things like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. Well, absolutely. And that makes sense. You can't help but be influenced by what you've been exposed to. And especially at that young age, you've been exposed to a limited amount of things. And you're also, I guess maybe you're feeling them more emotively. Yeah. Like everything is quite fresh and you're like, oh yeah, I'm so pumped about this series. And then you write something about it. And that's absolutely, I totally agree. Like every story, especially now, like it's, we're not, it's not that everything's a retelling. But things can't help but have similarities. And yeah, of course, you have a protagonist, they go through trauma, they're a reluctant hero, but they are the hero in the end, they have skills. Like, that's, you know, that's the story of everything. That's the story of Harry Potter, that's the story of Hunger Games, that's everything. Yeah. But I think the thing is, it's like, it, it's sort of like, so you have a race of special magic wielders, okay? That's, that exists in every fantasy book, okay? Harry Potter, witches and wizards, you know? It exists in every fantasy book. And then you have to have a villain. Well, the only way for that villain to stand or pose any threat is for them to be part of the race who's turned bad. Yeah. So, yes, that's exactly like Star Wars. And Absolutely. Like and if there's a race of people who stand against, who, you know, if, if there's an evil one who's more powerful and, you know, has to be opposed or whatever, um, then there's going to be a rebellion. So you have the rebel cause, the rebels, and you have the Varden, and you have... Um, uh, Dumbledore's army. No, that's no, not, what's it called? Order of the Phoenix? The Order of the Phoenix. There's always going to be a group that is a rebellion. Yeah. So it's just, it's 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 silly to point out those particular things and go, oh, it's derivative. Yes, it's derivative. That makes sense. Plot-wise, it makes sense for those things to be connected. Yeah. The fact that he's a farm boy, not all that, not all that unrealistic. The vast majority of the people in 
the world of Alagazia would be farmers. Yeah. Percentage-wise. Percentage-wise, it makes sense that the main protagonist is going to be a farmer. What I think sets Aragon apart from other films and books is the female characters. I absolutely agree. Which they fucking destroyed in the movie. <laughs> because Arya is this flitty little thing. She does fight in the battle, but in the book, she's a force to be reckoned with. She fights Aragon as part of his test, and Aragon loses. Mm. You know, she doesn't laugh or smile at Aragon's jokes because she understands the significance of what's going on and who Aragon is, and 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 the hope that he represents. But he also, but she, she's she's harsh. She's harsh. She's also and she's like a hundred years older than Aragon. I was just gonna say she's also a lot older and a lot wiser. She's seen a lot more in the film. She's way too sexualized. She's way too. <laughs> The dream scene when she's twirling through the woods. She's dancing around trees. Yeah. Fuck, that's dumb. Yeah. I I hated that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Arya's very serious. She's very serious. She's very in control. She's very stoic. Aragorn says things to her later, like, towards the end of the book where he's like, stay safe for my sake. And she's a bit awkward about it because she's like, you, you shouldn't Like, have... why are you being emotional toward me? Yeah, like, you're 17. To me, you're a child. I'm over 100 years old. Yes, I look like I'm in my early 20s, but that's because I'm an elf. She's yeah. also... They openly name her in the film as, I'm the princess. Like, what? That's not revealed until much later. No, and she doesn't want it to be. Yeah. She is the messenger of the Varden. She's the protector of the egg. Like, that was what she was doing. She didn't... She doesn't go around... Being like, I'm, you know, and that's also like a, a thing like, oh, I'm the princess, save me. Yeah. Uh, like, are you joking? Yeah, I totally agree. There's... And Arya saves Aragorn, like we talked about when he's fighting sh- the Shade. Yeah, exactly. And Sephira is also made weirdly weak, even though she's a ginormous dragon. Oh, like, yeah. There's all these things where, like, he's the rider, so it's his decision. I'm like, yeah. dude. And he, he and commands her, and I'm like, whoa, Sephira is her own person. <laughs> Her own entity. She is. But they're absolutely a partnership. Like, at the end of the day, if Sephira doesn't want to do something, she doesn't do it. It's not that Aragorn is her rider. It's that they make decisions together. Yeah. And he really values her opinion. Like, something that the film misses is that they really don't grow enough together. And their relationship isn't nearly as developed as it should be. Yeah, in the movie, like, Aragorn's like, boom, you're my dragon. I care about you. But in the book, Aragorn has to learn... And get to know Sephira as the entity that she is. Yeah, originally Also, he calls her it at one point. After she started speaking to him. Like. He would know better. He would never. It's like, it it would be like me calling you an it. And there's a point in the film where he's like, oh my god, you can read my thoughts. And he's super excited about it. Whereas in the book, he's like, what is this weird person inside my... Which is exactly how you would actually react. Because you'd be like, in my life. I've never had someone else inside my head. What is this sensation? I don't like it. And the writers were like over 100 years before Aragorn was born. So no one in that he knows is aware of the fact that there ever existed a being that could read another being's thoughts. Yeah, totally. So that's that's a huge, it's such a big deal. <laughs> With the female characters as well, Nazueda is something that we've already mentioned, but I really hate 
her interpretation. She's, she's, she's a sex trope. She's not even a named character in the film. Yeah. And she... She ends up controlling, ruling, and commanding the Varden and all the rest of the Rebellion army that joins as a, re- as a result of her leadership. And she unites the Urgles and the Elves and the Dwarves against Galbatorix and commands the army that rises up and defeats him. So, what the fuck? I'm okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so absolutely, I thought, especially for, shall I call him Christopher? Paolini. Yeah. Um, for him to write those strong female characters, like the, you know, the um, dedication to the book is to his mum and dad and his sister, and I'm sure his sister had a lot of influence on his development of the female characters, and I totally agree that that was lost in the film, and it's, it's kind of like, did you think people wouldn't like the film if the female characters were too strong you know it's only made in 2006 so sure that, yeah it was before, that, it, before it was before strong female characters before, became the hip new thing before wonder woman before captain marvel sure um but you know doesn't mean that they couldn't couldn't have been there it's just that people were like oh no they might be uncomfortable with it mm, she has to be emotionally and romantically interested in the main character like no yeah she, it takes, she does not it takes her ages to even become aware or open to the idea of potentially even seeing Aragorn as anything other than what he has to be for all of their races to be able to live freely again yeah yeah no I absolutely agree and it was frustrating to watch it was he wrote feminist characters before the idea of feminist characters was widely accepted and pushed in Hollywood yeah. and he did it the right way he just he was like Arya is a badass it wasn't like oh I'm a badass feminist let me rub it in your face it was like Arya is a badass because women can be badasses yeah there's even a bit at the end where Aragorn is like oh she shouldn't be fighting in the battle and Arya's like I'm not like your human woman who you keep from fighting like yeah. we train our elf children female or male to be warriors which is how it should be and it's like boom yeah. Like, that's the only confrontational thing. And, it's and just... there's a way to fight as well. Yeah, yeah. Even though her dad's like, no, don't. Uh, and Arya's physically stronger than Aragorn. And it just makes sense that she would fight. And for him to be like, oh, don't. I'm like, of course she wouldn't be interested. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you review Aragorn as just a film? Just a film? Just a film. Two out of ten. For me... It's a worse film than an adaptation. Yeah, because I, you know, I enjoy fantasy. I enjoy seeing Safira come to life because I'm that kind of person. I love animal, not sidekicks, animal partners. I love mm. them. I just couldn't, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll eat them up. Mm, tasty, tasty. But yeah, I hate it. This is the only film in the history of my life that previously when we tried to watch it, we were 20 minutes in and it was so bad and I've stopped. It's the only film in my life I've stopped watching because it was so bad. I couldn't endure anymore. So, mm. yeah, two out of ten. Terrible film. <laughs> Terrible film. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that. I think it's a better film than it is an adaptation uh, because I'm partial to the book. I I would give it a four. I, would I like give... how we swapped. That's funny. <coughs> Robitussin. Um, I would give it a four. I would give it a five if the script was marginally, even marginally better, I'd give it a five. But I'm going to give it a four because the script is so bad. One of the lines that I wrote down was, <laughs> we can't truly be together until I become as strong as you. 
And this, this is something is that Aaron when he goes to yeah, rescue Arya, and I'm and I and I I'm sitting here, I'm watching the movie, and I understand the entire plot. I know what's about to happen. He's going to go rescue Arya, but that concept as a motivation for Aragon to rescue Arya is never revisited for the rest of the film. It's not shown that he is now strong enough to be closer to Ar- to Safira. They don't become closer as a result of that interaction. The line is just a reason to keep Safira out, yeah. but it a reason doesn't for make him to go in by himself any sense. Um, but a simpler reason would be, Safira, you can't fit into the building. Yep, you're a giant dragon. If this is a stealth mission, you have to stay here. Oh, yep, that makes sense. Yeah. And it does. And she'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I'll wait until you call me, because you have a mental link, and she can come when you call her. Yeah. It's just... Ugh. Yeah. I think they made a lot of really weird choices with things like that. Uh... There's a lot of weird shots of them. What? Are you going to bring up Brom's stance? <laughs> I was going to talk about just the excessive amount of scenery shots. Oh, when them riding over. Things. Just riding over mountains. Just forever. I, I agree. It's upsetting that the shots of Aragon and Murtagh riding are the same as the shots of Aragon and Brom riding because they were riding at different paces because they had a different amount of urgency behind them. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. Um, Definitely there is a shot when, just before Aragon is about to try riding Saphira for the second time, uh, Brom gets up and is explaining some magic to him. And he stands up and he puts his hands on his hips and it is just so awkward. He does the Peter if Pan you, stance. He does the Peter Pan stance. That's I thought, perfect. It's, it's, that's perfect. The Peter Pan He is stance. standing like Peter Pan. Yeah. And it, but, it made me laugh out loud at how awkward and I don't know if he was told to do that or if he felt... I can't imagine he felt inclined. <laughs> it's just something that... He's a reputable actor. It wouldn't make sense to do that with your hands and I thought it was very odd. And if you pause it at that shot, it just will, will make you laugh. Definitely. There were so many things that were wrong with this film. Like, the cinematography of Safira was praised, and that's that's where the praise stops. Apart from <laughs> that, the one other thing that is enjoyable is the beautiful moment um, as Brahm is dying and Safira says, let him die as a writer. Oh my god. And that's not in the book, but it's the best part of the whole goddamn movie. Best part of the film, easily. Please explain it a bit more. So... Aragorn realizes that Brom was a writer and that his dragon died. And if a dragon dies, the writer dies. Does not necessarily die. But if the writer dies, the dragon dies. A lot of the time, if the dragon dies, the writer goes mad, like in the case of Galvatorix. But Brom didn't go mad. He just got real sad. He just got real sad. And... Mopey. He's... From a time perspective, which isn't really discussed in the film, Brom has now lived like almost a hundred years without seeing a dragon yeah yeah he's he's super old he he's really old and for him to see Safira would have been an incredibly emotional moment because his he's he's spent so long fighting against this after losing his dragon at the hands of Galbatorix and Morzan and to see what he's worked his entire life for come to fruition with his son it's incredible. And for Safira to recognize that and say, let him dry, d- die as a dragon rider. Mm. For Brom, that's who he was. Yeah. that I, That's, it, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was, I don't understand why I wasn't in the book. Um, <laughs> it was really nice. Yeah, because Irakon uh, can't heal Brom's wound and Safira suggests it. And uh, the, the, you see this beautiful shot 
of Brom's eyes closing as he's soaring through the sky with Safira. Yeah. And it's, it's easily the only time in the film that I felt emotionally invested. And it's the, it would have been so much stronger, though, if we had had a better connection between Brom and Aragorn. Like, Brom teaches Aragorn to spar. Brom teaches Aragorn to use magic. Brom teaches Aragorn to read. Brom shows Aragorn how to grow up, how to be intelligent, mm. how to make wise decisions. Yeah, they completely cut out the time they spent in term. Yeah. Where Aragorn learns to read from Brom and there's, you know, it's a lot more time. Because <laughs> here's the issue with what they did with changing the plot. So because they changed the motivation from hunting the Rorzak, the way they mer- meet Murtag is completely wrong. So Murtag is actually also hunting the Rorzak and he happens to save Aragorn and Brom. Well, Brom dies from that attack. He doesn't ta- die from being stopping something from hitting Aragorn. He dies because he was slashed by a poisonous blade by the Rorzak. And so he does die. But because of that, you have to give this weird justification. Like Murtag's like, oh, I just heard about the Dragon Riders. And I was like, I want to be part of that business. Yeah, but at this point, very few people in in the kingdom would know that there was another Dragon Rider. Absolutely. And it also doesn't give... In fact, it's a plot point at the end that... Um, Nazweda wants to use the birth of a new dragon rider yeah, um, to, to help aid the Varden. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives, uh, it doesn't give Aragorn as much of an opportunity to learn to trust Murtag because, yeah, Murtag shoots some arrows in the film because he randomly happens to be there. But for me, if I was Aragorn, I'd be like, why were you here? Like, you obviously were following me. Whereas in the book, he's following the Rorzak and, and helps him when they're attacked. So that makes a lot more sense rather than being like, you've been watching us. Yeah. You weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of Yeah. Lots of criticism for the film. Definitely I think the book also gets a bit of a hard time, you know, because of the issues you talked about at the beginning, but I think it's amazing that he wrote something quite complex and, you know, the content that's in it. He builds a very I feel physical world that he's got yeah, sure, classic dwarves, elves, humans, you know, the um Urgles, which are like the what are they called in Lord of the Rings? The the ones that come out of the dirt. You're asking the wrong person. I am asking. Our, our listeners will be screaming it. They'll be like, yeah. it's not <laughs> But, um, yeah, I mean, you've got those ugly creatures. Oh, and the way... <laughs> I keep digressing, sorry. But the way they were visually represented in the film was so stupid. They were just, all, of, all of the looks were done. Yeah, they just did humans in, like, weird makeup. And I'm it's like, clear that, That's yeah. not what an ogre looks like. It's, a, it's an animal. Humanoid, humanoid, yes, but it's much more animalistic than a painted man. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, but that's what I wanted to say. I definitely, the second time around, enjoyed the book a lot more, and I think that people are a bit harsh on it, but for what it is, it's really entertaining. Sure, yeah, it's it it, it is. I agree. I think there is there's a lot of criticism with the book being derivative, but if the book was derivative and terrible. Nobody would read it, even children. Yeah, children are clever, m- much more clever than we give them credit for. Um, but the book isn't derivative. It isn't derivative and terrible. It's derivative and quite good. There are some really special moments, like the one where Arya defeats Aragorn in, in the training session, and there are some really other other really great moments, like when Aragorn and Brom arrive in uh, Durrit. And everyone's been slaughtered by Urgles, and 
Aragon is having all these existentialist questions and you know realizing about Garo and Garo being gone and like death and his fear of dying of not existing he like actually says the phrase not existing like that's significant yeah and it's disappointing that that aspect of Aragon's character isn't explored we're talking about someone who for all intents and purposes expected to live a long life an, a typical human life of you know probably what 60 or 70 80 years at that point in the, the, their world and now they, he has a very real possibility of dying much sooner than that and that would be terrifying for a 17 year old yeah he's 16 in the book cause and he, he talks about in his first year of manhood he thinks about killing people and like that effect on you know he's killed people and that's that's a difficult thing for him to accept yeah and um whether or not Rurin people talks about that in the second book you, yeah the, the moment where Murtog kills the slave where he kills the slaver um and Aragon gets so upset with him oh yeah 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 definitely, you know definitely. and he talks about right and wrong and um you know that th- that's something that we don't get Orcs! in the film Orcs. I didn't yeah. find it. Sorry, I was a bit distracted because I was looking it up and I was like, oh my god, my brother had figurines of them. What the fuck are they called? Orcs. Sorry, that was just... Yeah. I had to figure that out. My brain was driving me crazy. So yeah, it's, it's painful. The script is bad. The characters aren't developed. You don't care about them. You don't care about the relationships that they have. The relationship between Arya and Aragorn is derivative. And you don't even get the world building that you would get in a normal fantasy because so many of the designs for characters, like the um Razak and Durza yeah. and uh yeah. and and the Urgles and then the Varden were kind of disappointing like Tronjim is supposed to be this epic city built into inside a mountain yeah it's and that would have been fucking cool to see yeah Aragorn references so many times how he misses the wind and then literally they come in the film and he's outside and he gets brushed with wind and I'm like this is not accurate yeah <laughs> Yeah, so totally. you, you don't you don't even really get the fantasy elements of the fantasy film yeah. in this film uh, yeah. other than other than Safira, which is in a lot of ways an underutilized character in the film. Yeah. It's sounding more likely about what your brother mentioned about being attacked right off because I really don't understand what they were going for with the film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people commended Rachel Wise's acting, and I'm sure her acting was fine, but I didn't like the way that her voice the the filter they put on her voice to make it you know seem more like I'm a dragon no 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 to seem more like um wispy like it was kind of like in her head you know like it was a bit echoey and I and I didn't like that because it felt even more like a voiceover of a puppet (laughs) and yeah I know that it's coming through your head but I've seen other examples of that kind of telepathy in film that I think is stronger mm. than what they chose for sure it's a bit it was a bit it pandered you know i feel like, like the whole we film wouldn't pandered. understand that they were using telepathy if telepathy telepathy is it telepathy it's absolutely i didn't know what you was you saying telepathy yeah I, so, I was almost like is it telekinesis but it's not i just it just telepathy. Broke for a second telepathy i thought your accent was just coming in and out is what it was but you just were saying the word wrong yeah <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, I think we've um, ranted enough. Unless it's um, I definitely would not watch the film again. No, never again. So, never. Just. Yeah. To, oh. <laughs> I think it is in my life. I want Rob Reiner to direct this film. He directed um, *The Princess Bride*. <laughs>
That's how I want to direct this film. Sure, I mean, they're different types of fantasy, but yeah. One of them is better. <laughs> the type isn't necessarily No, better, but, but yeah, I yeah, mean... Yeah, 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 yeah. The film is really good. But the film is what it is. Yeah. Oh, beans. What did you miss the most from the book that you didn't get to see? I guess a lot of the relationship dynamics, I felt like there wasn't any time for me to get either emotionally invested enough or... For the relationships to be portrayed correctly, like like you keep saying, a lot of the characters were just derivative, so for me it didn't feel realistic at all, and I just didn't care, and I really like the relationship that Brom and Aragon have, the relationship that Aragon and his cousin Roran have, like, I don't think it would be as silly as it is in the film, but I miss that a lot, and yeah, just, I don't know, the whole, the whole film felt rushed. And so for me, I just missed being told a good story. I found the whole experience. I hate it when a film is frustrating. Hmm. And I just felt frustrated. That's what I missed. What about you? What did you miss? I think either the architecture. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, because um, term. Yeah. And, and the weird water city they go to in the film is stupid. And I yeah. totally agree, Carver Hall looks all wrong. Architecture is a good one. <laughs> I'm like, relationships! And you're like, buildings. Well, I but uh, when I think about the world building, because one of the things that I, I was looking forward to, or would have been looking forward to, would have been um, Tronchheim, but the elf city. Elizmira. Elizmira would have been cool to see. Yeah. Um, and if their architecture in this film was any indication of what it would have been like if they continued the franchise, then uh, Elizmira would have been disappointing. But also Salembum. The yeah. Winter. He's very kit. humorous, and I enjoy him. He's great. Christopher Paolini did a really great job with the variety of characters that he wrote. Like, the more I think about it, the more I'm just super impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to do the final segment? Revise, remake, or retire. Revise being that they attempt to make the film again with better scripts, better characters, and more closely, like, a better adaptation. Remake being they make the same film, but with updated CGI. Boo! <laughs> um, obviously different actors, uh, but essentially the same story. And retire, don't ever do it again. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Shall we say it at the same time? Because I feel like that's always fun. Yeah, it's fun. real fun. Yeah. One, two, three. Revise! Oh, yeah! I'm so Boom! Su- I'm so surprised that we both feel that way. Occasionally we differ. Sure, but this one, I, this week, I knew we definitely felt the same. Yeah. yeah. I would love to see a better adaptation of this uh, film. It would be I would epic. love to see it as a TV series. <laughs> I say this again and again, but like... It's true. It's true. There are very few books that I have read in my life where I'm like, yep, that would make a good movie. Yeah. The Princess Bride is a perfect example of one that does make a good movie. Yes. Because the book is short. It's like, bam, this is the story. Bam, these are the characters. Boom, done. Whereas when you are essentially world building, you yeah. need massive long films like they do in lord of the rings three hours long each for you to you know be able to really tell the story and that's what this if you're going to do a film needs to be three hours long absolutely yeah whereas obviously like the top golden compass is coming up that's going to be a bbc tv series and i'm really looking forward to it because they can go into the detail that it's not they didn't do the detail in the film but we don't we talked about that last week and and there's space for a series that is like a TV series, but like a movie. And I think we saw that with Sense8, which wasn't based on a book series, but, you know, a lot of the episodes were an hour, hour and a half long. Yeah, totally. And I never thought anything of it. Mm. Well, the pacing of what they did with Good Omens, it's 
not a long series. It's just six episodes. Yeah. And they're an hour long each. You can... I don't know why people don't realize. And Good Omens is a short book, but... Yeah, it was an awesome series. But I don't know why people don't realize that you can do that with long books. Like, just make it longer. People... Why do you think people will not want to watch it? People have read this entire book. I guess the benefit with the movie is get the box office bust, which is different from a TV series. And there are so many more competing slots for TV series. But, I mean, Netflix mm. nowadays. Well, then... I know that wasn't necessarily a thing back then. Yeah. We still had VH fucking S. Sure, but, but... But break it up then. Do part one. Like, we all know that the last Twilight book didn't need to be in two parts, but they did it anyway. And this is a great example of when you could do part one, part two, because there is so much detail yeah. and world building and relationships that need to be developed in these series. And we love going along for the ride. Yeah. Tell me a good story. I will give you all my money. <laughs> Franchises have shaped our lives. Harry Potter, when the last Harry Potter movie ended. I was hysterical. I, yeah, I was, I was in, the, in the movie theater and it was like, that was my childhood. That this half my life has been building to this moment. Absolutely. And that's significant. The poster, it all ends. Great poster. Great marketing. <laughs> well done. Well done. Yes. For the record, Harry Potter, like, none of the franchises have given us money. It's just us. We enjoy talking about them. <laughs> we run a, I'm sure you won't be surprised to know that we won a quiz once uh, based on Harry Potter. <laughs> it's just, yeah. It's really good. We haven't even watched it that recently. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's just a great example of when you just can invest time and money. And not all the films are perfect, but, you know, just do it well and people will give you their money. Yeah. Stop rushing through things. Stop rushing... Like, I don't understand why you would. Like, you would think, make it good, we'll come back for the rest and just give you more money. And it's it's not like it was taking a risk, you know? With the book? Yeah, like turning it into a film and like investing money into it. It's not like it would have been a risk. It wouldn't have been a risk. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they're doing it again. Artemis Fowl <laughs> is being remade, and from the looks of it, it's going to be awful. Yeah, but final... final not remade, sorry, with, turned into a film. With it not being a risk, final fun facts. It was the best-selling children's hardback book in 2003, and then the second best in 2005. As so, the paperback. Yeah, so it's yeah. not like... Exactly. It wasn't a risk. It had an obvious following, and children will annoy the shit out of their parents to take them to a film. But I mean, just like, like I mean, people keep saying it's a derivative of Star Wars. Yeah, it was a derivative of Star Wars. And Star Wars fucking broke the box office. Yeah. So it's not a risk. This is fantasy Star Wars. Yep. If Star Wars is sci-fi Star people Wars. Love this is fantasy Star Wars. Yeah. Give us dragons. Give us elves. We don't like reality. <laughs> anyway. We've ranted enough. Uh, thank you if you stuck with us to the end. Sorry if this was a bit more aggressive. The film is just garbage. But yeah, read the book if you haven't already. I don't mean to be so harsh, but I just, you know, I haven't made a film. I'd like to make a film. But this is a review podcast, so it is what it is. Yes. What are we doing next week, Mitty? We're going to go on a fun adventure of Matilda. Matilda. And I'm excited. I that, off. that will be great. Classic. It's gonna be a good time. It'll be it'll be fun because it I be... <laughs> read the mo- I read the movie. I watched the movie as a kid. They've got a lot of nostalgia attached to it, and now I'm gonna read the book. Yeah, and it will be a more positive podcast. So yeah, if this one was a bit harsh for you, tune in next week. Tune in. We're not like <laughs> tune in next week. Uh, download the podcast next week and next week on chapter one, take two. Will Maddie and Bree enjoy Matilda? You'll find out. Tune in. <laughs> That's pretty good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you... you listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Maddie.
just open up a little podcast review and be like, oh, Brie, Brie and Maddie are so much fun to listen to. We love them. Yep. And yeah, if you have any recommendations or feedback, we're a bit tired today, so we've been a bit loopy. Um, yeah. I'm not loopy. This is what I always sound like. Let us know. Uh, let us know what you would like us to discuss and how you felt. You know, we're all about sharing, sharing here. Um, yeah. Did you like Aragon? If you liked Aragon, tell us. Tell us why. The movie, not the book. We know why you like the book. Tell us why you like the movie. Okay, I'm like curious. Movie. Anyway, goodbye. Okay, goodbye now. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Oh, <laughs> no.